I'm going to ask you to, to turn to Romans chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, Romans chapter 7. I'll do a couple things as we're turning there. In a moment, I'm going to try to give you some orientation about why we're turning to the middle of Romans. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to say um, not only a welcome sort of generically as a whole church, and I know generically sounds bad, we always mean it, but uh, not in a perfunctory way, but personally, my name's Lance, I'm one of the pastors here, and it would be great to get to know, to know you better. So if there are some formal or informal means to get to know you better, please do uh, let us know. Tap someone on the shoulder or give us some information so we could connect with you. I also want to point out one thing, and Brian's going to remind you of this later. Uh, in a couple of weeks, so two weeks from today, we have an opportunity on a Sunday evening at six o'clock. We are going to be hosting an event that we're calling Theology in Practice. We've done this throughout the years. And in a couple of weeks, we have a unique opportunity. We're going to co-host this event and we are hosting a professor of systematic theology named Greg Allison from Southern Seminary. Greg is an expert in a, in a lot of different areas of theology. Uh, he also is a, is a man who uh, knows other languages. I think he speaks Italian fluently and has studied all kinds of different uh, forms of Latin and Italian theology through the years. He wrote a book. Uh, one of the things that he's written on is Roman, uh, Roman Catholic theology and practice or application. It's called an evangelical assessment. And we have an opportunity in a couple weeks to host uh, Dr. Allison, and we are going to spend time discussing with him some of the ways that church tradition, history, and ritual have been carefully and rightly guarded against. So maybe there's perhaps some practices of the church that are inherently dangerous or difficult, and so Protestants specifically have avoided them. Whereas there are some other traditions, some things that the church has passed down, that seem to seamlessly go between different traditions, including Protestant ones. Now, this is important, I think, for a lot of reasons. One, because Roman Catholicism is, uh, is, is prevalent in a lot of different areas, and many of us interact with, uh, with Christians who are Roman Catholic, and so we should have conversation points and know how to navigate those. But another reason is because we are coming up on what in church history is called Lent. It's a period of a time, and we as a, a church have, at least for a couple of different years, had an Ash Wednesday service, for instance. And I don't know what your history is of something like that. You may have had a friend or a relative say something like, well, that sounds kind of Catholic. And so, in a couple of weeks, you may be able to come here on that evening, and we're going to sit with someone who is, at least as much as you can be in these areas, an expert on things like this, and we're going to ask him and say, well, is this too Catholic? What are we doing right, or what are we doing wrong? And I think it'll be a really uh, pleasant and a good evening discussing uh, different areas of application and theology. So that's in a couple of weeks on the 20th. And again, you'll get more information about that. Brian will remind you at the end of the service. But I just wanted you to mark that on your calendar, Sunday evening, 6 o'clock on the 20th. Uh, Brian will remind you he won't be here because he's getting married the day before. I don't know if you knew that. You know, Brian's getting hitched. How exciting is that? So Brian's getting married the day before. We don't expect him to be there, uh, but we'd love for you to be there. All right, Romans chapter 7. Are we ready for Romans chapter 7? Let me explain really briefly why we're starting in Romans 7 this morning. If you're new or you're just visiting or you're here with a friend, we started a number of months ago doing what we, is common, a common practice for us. We began teaching through a book of the Bible. There are a lot of good things in Scripture. There's a lot of things that could be said. I'm passionate about a lot of different things, but we feel as though the best way to consider the Bible is to do it systematically by books. It keeps us from hobby horses. It keeps us from withholding or not describing or not saying what Scripture says about certain topics. So a number of months ago, we began teaching through the book of Romans, starting in chapter 1. 
And we have now made our way up through the seventh chapter. The thing that has been most astounding about Romans, the thing that seems to be the the theme of it, is this idea that God's righteousness, not only his perfect standard of righteousness, but the fact that he gives his righteousness to human beings. How is it possible that sinners can be in his presence and be named right? That that fact that this has become a reality in Christ is the whole of the book. It's the theme of the book. So we've called this series or this idea of Romans, Rags to Righteous. And what Paul is laboring, what he is so intent on showing us, is that all of humanity really breaks down into two different camps. There are those who see their sin and understand what an amazing thing it is to be welcomed into God's presence. If you're one of those kind of people, then you are likely a Christian, a person who says, I understand my sin, my need, and the forgiveness that I have in Jesus. And you have one eternal trajectory, a free gift of eternal life, both quantity and a quality of life. That is one side of humanity. On the other side, if you are a person who has not reckoned with your sin, who doesn't realize your need, who when you think about righteousness, it seems like some religious-y thing over there, and you've never understood that you have a dire need for forgiveness and right standing with God, then you are on the other side of humanity that has an expectation of wrath and of punishment forever, and who is, according to the book of Romans, who is dead, spiritually dead. That's how stark this contrast is. The stakes are high in the book of Romans. And so Paul is leveraging. It's his magnum opus. It is his absolute best work. And he is laboring, working to show us all the implications of this gospel because he's desperate. He thinks to himself, what if you miss this? What if you don't get it? That's what's driving him is this desire, this love that he has for the reader to understand who they are, what they have in Christ. Where we are now in the beginning of Romans 7, Paul's going to shift a metaphor. He's using all kinds of illustrations to both ask and answer questions for us. Questions like this, okay, so if I'm in Christ, well then who am I? And how am I supposed to relate to this sin that's in my life? What am I supposed to be doing? How can I define myself? What's true? What's not true? And as we come to the beginning of the seventh chapter, Paul's going to give us a few more illustrations, some ideas to explain things, to explain our relationship to sin, our relationship to the law, and he's going to give some ideas. Now, this isn't the first one. You're going to have to be careful. We've got to follow along very closely because he's shifting metaphors. He's given us different ideas. He's just come out of, at the end of Romans 6, describing the way that we should consider ourselves with righteousness as slave ownership transfer. So we just came out of a big metaphor of slavery, and now he's going to change it as we begin the first part of Romans chapter 7. Here's going to be the concepts we're looking for in Romans 7. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. In order for us to be good students, we've got to pay attention. He's like moving things around under some of those, what's, what's that shell game kind of thing. You've got to move things around and say, where am I now? What's happening? But he's going to give us these three ideas, these three illustrations in Romans 7 to help explain what a Christian is in relationship to sin and the law. Lover, he's going to talk about a lover, and married in this particular sense, but a lover, a light, and a lethal weapon. So those will be the three ideas that we're going to look at to help us understand who we are in Christ. A lover, a light, and a lethal weapon. And that's what we're going to see 
in these 12 verses as it reads. So I'd love for you to follow along. If you've got a finger there somewhere or a screen to turn on or something. This is the seventh chapter of Romans, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pause together and pray. I don't know if you feel your need, I do, but uh, a need for us to have light, to get our minds focused, and to be free from distractions. Let's pray that God would do that. Well, God, we've, we've gathered once again. We thank you for that gift. But in this gathering, we acknowledge that we come with all kind of needs. We've brought distractions and disappointments with us. If we're honest, if you really bottom it out, God, we have, we've come here and though we believe we're full of some minor and major doubts, we are in many ways still feeling bondage to different areas of sin in life. We're not as free as we'd love to be. And in these moments, we're going to be distracted. We're not able to focus the way that we should. We're not alive to truth the way that we'd love to be. So I ask God, would you please fill in the gaps? Would you let mercy be the thing that marks our gathering here this morning? Not because we deserve it, we're not impressive, not smart enough or spiritual enough, but I believe that you're present, you're here, you love us with an eternal love, and you're gracious, so I pray you'd be kind. Arrest our attention. Give us comfort where we need comfort. We pray, too, that you'd bring some correction, maybe show us our stubbornness in a new way. We want to learn together. We want to grow together. And we ask, Spirit of God, would you please speak and help us to listen? More than that, give us power to obey. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first five chapters of Romans, Paul outlines what I would call the gospel proper. It's the facts of the matter. It's the reality of God's creative power and his righteousness, the reality of the fallenness of man, how we are so sinful and in need, and then this great exchange that God brings. He culminates everything by describing grace, unmerited favor is the whole reality of the thing. But now in these middle few chapters, he is continuing on. You might say, well, you've already described the gospel, Paul. What's, what's there more to say? And what he realizes is that those who have come to, to know Christ desire to and want to live with him according to knowledge, according to wisdom, to know what it means to be completely sanctified, to have this life that's in us now take control in a deeper way. And one of the main things that remains is our relationship to sin, sin that continues to nag at us, sin that continues to hold in some ways. And so, he is doing everything he can to convince the person who has come to know Christ about what they have in Jesus, and he's so desperate that they get it, that he is now bringing to bear all of the possible powers of teaching, every kind of illustration. So what we just read in Romans 7, he's now shifted. He goes back to words like captive, which sounds like the slavery illustrations of Romans chapter 6. He's talking about being bound in a marriage. And then if the husband dies and the woman is like this, and so we've been set free to another, and you might be reading that and thinking like, wait, now am I the wife? Because I'm the wife, because Christ is the bridegroom, or am I the one that died? Did the wife kill the husband? Who did this? Was it warranted and how did they die? You might be trying to really follow along. And then he uses the word captive and like now we're back in slave world again. And then he's going to shift and describe illustrations for the law. You might say to yourself, well, why is he shifting illustrations so often? Why is it so hard to figure out what's going on there? And I just think about the passion that he has for us to get it. When I was in college, I took a job. I had a part-time job as a tutor. I was a math tutor. Loved math, felt like I could do a good job of this, and so I signed up with this math tutoring service, and I thought that maybe I'd be helping other college students or some, you know, hyperactive brained, you know, high school kids who want to get ahead in math or something. And what I found out was my placement for math tutoring was in an alternative high school. And by alternative in this sense, it was a high school for kids who weren't going to make it through high school. So I guess it could have been called an alternative to high school, high school. And very few of them got through. And I was in a classroom with anywhere 15 to 20 students of kids who had not done well in school. Many of them had all kinds of problems, legal or substance abuse or otherwise, families that were difficult. And my job each and every day when I showed up in this room was to convince that room of kids that math was awesome. I don't know if you've ever imagined a task like this. Now, some math, you may think to yourself, oh yeah, math is difficult. I mean, come on. All of us had to sit through different forms of, you know, figuring out functions and solving for x over y and the root factor of, you know what I mean? You've done this. And there are some things where you could be forgiven to say, I don't know, who's ever going to use this? However, in this particular room, a huge majority of the kids were taking consumer math, learning basic things like 
How much will it cost when I buy some shoes? Did they get the tax right? What will my tax rate be? How does interest work? And a huge number of these kids could simply not be convinced that any of it was important. And I remember feeling extremely motivated. I was passionate. I just so wanted these kids to get it and to see that if they would lock in, that this would mean something for their life. So I became, for those couple of years, one of the most desperate, grasping, math-junkie kind of people you'd imagine. If I was hanging out with my grandpa and he described some interest rate he got on a tractor that he had to lease for some new field, I'm just like writing notes down. And the next day I'm coming into class, I'm like, let me tell you why math's important. Have you ever heard of a farm? You know what that would be? What if you were on a farm and a tractor came and you had to know the, you know, I'm like in the middle of it and I'm sure these kids thought I was the biggest weirdo. Because you know what happened the next day? The next day I'd talk about some video game statistic that I heard a kid talking about in Halo. This kid would say, well, you know, if you really want to rank up in Halo, you got to win two, or two out of three games, and you got to have a KDA that's like this, and then it multiplies by the assists, and then it's this, and then it's this. So the next day, guess what I would do? I'd come in, and I'm like, like a magician. I'm like opening my jacket. Look at the math lessons today, kids. If you can figure out math, you'll own the noobs. Or whatever, I was trying anything that I could to get them to see that math could be important and vital for their life. And I feel that just a little bit. The way that we follow along with Paul in these middle chapters is to see his passion. For us, for us to understand the freedom, the life, the righteousness we have in Christ. It's as though he's imagining a whole world of Christians who have come to know Jesus and then leave him un, unopened as a gift from God. They leave the rights and the privileges that they have. The freedom that they have from sin, he sees so many people still bound up, still obeying the old master, still married to and bound by covenant law to an old lover, and he's just doing everything he can to show them this new identity that they have. So now he has shifted, and this first illustration that he's going to use, it's as though he's, he's riding along and he's thinking to himself, how can I show them? Oh, I know, they understand marriage and what that is. So he goes and he wants to describe this fact. And for anyone who has come to know Christ, they must realize that it is as foundational and fundamentally different as taking on a new spouse. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, this is how new knowledge works. John Milton Gregory, who wrote a book called The Seven Laws of Teaching, Teachers and the Seven Laws of Teaching, one of the most foundational, I think, um, presentations of how we come across new information. He has this to say, and I think it's what Paul's getting at here. He said, I want you to know, and I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's trying to bring in a new bit of ideas by bringing it up alongside something they already know. That's how we all learn. This is Gregory's lesson of, or it's his law of the lesson. He said, we must understand and realize the obvious fact that pupils learn new truths by the aid of those things they already know as old and familiar. The new and the unknown can only be explained by the familiar and the known. This, then, is always the law of the lesson. Truth must be learned through truth already known. This is why these illustrations are so effective. Because Paul says, 
here. There's a new thing going on, and I'm not going to be able to capture it perfectly. Here's the new thing. You are a brand new creation in Christ. God himself has come and absorbed the wrath due the penalty of sin. He's exchanged his righteousness for yours. You have new life, hope eternally forever. And it's though he says to himself, I know, it's crazy, right? This is unbelievable. It's never been happened. This is good news. How do I explain it? And now he's going to grasp at some things that they already knew, some relationships they'd already been aware of, and he's going to line them up. He's doing what Gregory points out here. All of us can only learn something new by comparing it or contrasting it to something that we already know. And so this metaphor is what he's going to pull on. Marriage. He says, here's the thing. You know how a covenant binds a person in marriage? And when you're bound together in some, with someone in marriage, everything about your life is shifted and changed. You're legally changed. Your mind changes. Your schedule changes. You have a heart affection that changes. There is a lover that you are bound to. He said, I want you to think about it. When you come to know Christ, it's as though you've been placed in a brand new marriage. This old marriage that you had, this old connection, affection that you had for sin, this binding that the law had over you has been released. And the way that that old binding, that old affection of the marriage, the covenant that was binding you, the way that a marriage is dissolved is the same way that this one was dissolved. What do, you say, what do people say at the end of marriage vows? I'm going to do this and this and this, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, all up and down, right? How long? As long as we both have breath, right? As long as I'm alive. And what Paul's trying to say now is that the way that that gets broken, the most, way, the most obvious way that it can get broken is if one no longer has breath. Is if one of the spouses dies, and then that person is free to be remarried, and he's trying to show them that that's no less than that is what took place when they came to know Jesus. That in the same way a death has taken place, in this case it's your death in the death of Christ, and you have been freed up from allegiance to this old affection, this old love that you had of sin or self, this old binding covenant of the law has been nullified and you have been betrothed. You have been covenanted. You have been given over in a new affection and a new love and a new commitment to a new spouse. You've been remarried. Just as clean as a previous death from a previous marriage severs that covenant, so have you been severed from your old way of life and the claims that sin and law had on you. And you have now been bound to another. You are married to Christ, married to the righteousness that he gives you. And this is one of the most important things about you and your identity. We must live married to Christ. That's what he's trying to say. You are a married person in the way that we relate to sin and righteousness and to Jesus. So verse 4 is why he tells us, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Many people here, even in reading the rest of this, see an ongoing commentary, an ongoing illustration of marriage. He says, in order that we may bear fruit for God, in the same way that a marriage bears fruit of children in life, he says, so you must anticipate new fruit, a life, 
a life of righteousness because you are married to Christ. You have been bound to him and by him. Now, let me make a point right here. You may be listening to this and say, okay, I'm with you. I'm putting one thing alongside of the other. I kind of get the marriage thing. But let me ask you some questions. Wasn't I the wife and am I now the husband and I was the one that died, but Christ was the one that died? And then how does this relate to what Paul's going to teach about in the rest of the Bible about marriage and remarriage or divorce? And here's the whole point. Metaphors break down. Did you know that? Metaphors eventually they break down. Jesus knew this. He taught in parables all the time. And sometimes those who were interacting with him, they just didn't get it. Remember Nicodemus? He's like, wait, but can you, you crawl back in the womb? Is that how, do you, how does a person get back in there? How does that even work? And Jesus is just like hand on his forehead. Like it, it's a metaphor. You just don't get that. You don't so let me ask you, or let me encourage you to not miss the point of what Paul is saying. And I think a lot of people, when they get technical in reading, maybe out of good desire, they have a zeal for knowledge, they want to learn the specifics and sometimes get so bogged down, they miss the point of the metaphor. And I would encourage you, don't ever be the metaphor breaks down guy. You know that person? You ever tried to tell a story or give an illustration and you got one person who's like, their whole point is just to miss the point? Well, actually, did you know, I, I, did you, did you know that your metaphor doesn't really make any sense because, uh, because creatures of that variety in that particular forest couldn't survive for longer? Than, you know what I mean? Have you ever been that person or heard that person? Let me just encourage you. One, don't ever be that person because the only way you ever learn anything is by listening to metaphors and illustrations and similes. That's just how we function. And two, you're not really revealing what you think you're revealing by being metaphor breaks down guy. You're revealing a lot about you, but not about the illustration. Everybody else pretty well gets it. I know it's not an actual marriage, maybe. You know, it's not an, it's not an actual slavery relationship. And Paul acknowledges this too at the end of Romans chapter 6. He said, look, I'm, I'm speaking in human terms. This is a natural limitation kind of illustration. So, the point here, let's not miss while we're trying to follow all the details of these illustrations, let's not miss the main point. And here's the main point. Paul wants Christians to see that their allegiance from the heart to Christ needs to be as fundamentally changing and life-altering as a commitment in a marriage would be if they had a new spouse. Everything about your heart your attention, your affection is pressed toward the new lover. You have been given a new affection, a new commitment, a new covenant. And it's one of the things that we must understand and must embrace about what it means to be a Christian. Until you escape the idea that Christianity is another bit of an add-on or just an ethical code to fit into the mix of the way that you're living, until you reject that idea and take on Christ as full-heartedly as a marriage, you're just not going to get the benefit of what is offered in him. That's what Paul is saying. At the end of the day, he says this is so fundamentally different. And again, he's going to shift metaphors a little bit. He talks about being released from the law, when we were held captive in verse 6. See how he's starting to mix metaphors? And he summarizes this section by just saying that we now serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in, in the old way of the written 
code, that the law, this written code idea, no longer binds us in the same way. But from our hearts, from our spirits, we have been given new affections. We are motivated and stirred in new ways to love what God loves, namely him, to love him. So that is this metaphor. It's one of the ways that we begin to see ourselves in a new light. And it's got to be a part of your arsenal. If someone describes or asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You, might, you don't have to describe it like this. Maybe you think that's not the one for you. or Maybe that's not the go-to illustration. But Paul wants you to have as a part of your tool belt because it defines us in particular ways. Now there's going to be two other things that he wants to describe here. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, he's going to keep us from an error. Keep us from an error. And here's how he does that. He asks a question. Remember, this is going to be one of our keys. This is one of the keys in the way that we understand Romans from the rest of it. You are understanding Romans and getting the point if you're asking the questions that Paul is asking. Does that make sense? Paul says, here's what we could say now, and then he's going to ask a question. And if you're not thinking that or with him, then you need to go back and reread or rethink through what he's said. And here, he says, is going to be the error. Here's the problem some people could have. We just described the law and sin that is illuminated by the law as a slave master and an old dead spouse. And that's the, that's the illustrations that have been given. So he says, now you might get the wrong impression. What then shall we say, he says in verse 7, that the law is sin? In other words, he says, you might start to disparage the law. God gave these commandments. He gave the rules. And you might start to think to yourself, man, these rules are a bummer. It's the commandments that's the problem. Yeah, God set up a hurdle that none of us could get over. It's the hurdle that's the problem, not us. We're very athletic and agile. It's the hurdle's problem. You see what can happen here? He's been, he's been describing our bondage in slavery to sin previously, and our covenant in a previous marriage to the law. He says, I don't want you to make this mistake. Don't think that the law is sin. So he responds the same way that he's responded in the idea that we might sin because of if grace abounds. By no means. That's his go-to phrase. And then he's going to give us two reasons why the law is not sin. That our relationship or the relationship between sin and law and us could be defined in these ways. First, he's going to say, the law is not sin because it is in fact a light, and light is good. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here's what Paul's trying to say. The law itself is good. It reveals the standard that would have been murky or fuzzy or in the dark previously. And yet... We all know that just because light is shown on something, if you love the darkness a little bit, if your eyes aren't trained for the light, I remember hearing someone talk about going through an eye surgery, one of those LASIK kind of things, and they put sunglasses on the people because their eyes become like impossible for light. Like if there's even a little bit of light in the room, it just like burns their eyes like a vampire or something like ah my eyes and here's the reality of light right light is a wonderful thing unless our eyes aren't trained for it unless we have a, a small love for the darkness 
And so, Paul says, here's what I experienced in me. The law is good. It's just that sometimes I don't like light. I don't like to be shown the score. I don't want to know what the standard is. And so he goes on and he says, here's the thing. I wouldn't even have known that I was coveting. I would have just been wanting stuff. And then I read the law and realized just how sinful it was. Have you ever been in a spot like this? Where you thought things were fine and you were kind of annoyed that someone pointed out the reality of the score? Someone showed you the rules? Finally got the test grade back? I don't know if you're in this spot or not, but one of the things that's been most astounding to me over the pandemic is the fact that chess has gotten much cooler. Did you know that? Chess is much cooler. It's just another sign of the apocalypse upon us, perhaps. So I've played a little bit more chess. My kids are a little bit more into chess. I play with one of my sons more regularly, and it's been pretty fun. Sometimes we'll play on, uh, you know, he's got his iPad thing, and I'll play on an iPad, and we'll, we'll play against each other. And, you know, the funniest thing that can happen in this We'll play a little five or a ten minute game and there's like 15 minutes of just complete brain warfare. It's dead silent in the room. We're just, I mean, it's just throwing blows. We, we watch sports too, I promise, but we're just, we're just like, it's just like really, we're just going after it. You get to the end of it and there's been numerous times where I've said something like this. Man, that was a great game of chess. You played awesome. I think we both played well. <laughs> I was like, that was amazing. This was, this should have been in a tournament somewhere. But then here's the funny thing that happens nowadays. You know, computers have taken over chess nearly completely. And uh, they give you a little score almost immediately after you play. And there's no worse feeling than thinking you're just killing it. You could even win the game. You get through to the end, you're like, yeah, boom, I was amazing. And then you know what happens is a little scorecard pops up on the side. You know what it says? It says nine inaccuracies, four blunders, three missed wins. And it's devastating. So I'm playing with my son. I tell him, you played great. I think it was good. Man, we, it was amazing. And then you have to click through and you can watch all the moves. And the computer tells me, you were dumb, you were dumb, you were dumb. <laughs> like, anyone would have seen this, not you. I mean, that's, it's that insulting. There's a point where I'm trying to tell my kid, I'm encouraging him. I'm like, look at this, you played great. And then four moves in, there it is in black and white. He puts his queen directly in front of me so I can take it. And what am I supposed to say to my kid? I'm sorry, you're just not as smart as you thought you were. That was a really bad move. The only saving grace of the whole move is that I didn't even see it. <laughs> and I just let his queen sit there and I didn't even take it. I'm just like, here, why don't you just keep that instead of me taking it? You see, the point is this. I can very easily be deluded in a sort of fuzzy darkness of thinking that I was way better than I was. And then the standard comes. The super thinking nerd computer comes and it lays out all of the facts starkly in front of me. And if I'm not careful, I can start to really be annoyed. Just for a second, couldn't I have thought we played good chess? Couldn't you just leave me alone? Wasn't it easier or better when I, when I thought in my own self-esteem that things were going okay? But it turns out when the law comes, it shines a light it brings into stark contrast things that otherwise could have been overlooked. You see, the righteousness of God, his standard set forth for us in the law is so exacting. He's so holy, he's so pure that it can lead us to even disdain the law that he's given because in many ways, mankind has loved darkness rather than light. 
And Paul says, we need to be careful. There is an old way of thinking. There is an old bondage to sin kind of way of thinking that actually disparages and is annoyed at the standard of righteousness. It's like the kid who brings up to the teacher, "Uh, teacher, I just want to remind you there was a lot of homework due today and you said you were going to make sure that every paper was in. And then what do the five kids in the class who didn't do their work say? You idiot. You're the dumbest. Shut up. You're so stupid. As though it's the kid that's the problem. Or the standard is the problem. And not their laziness or their inability to get the thing done. And Paul says, look, stop. It's one actually evidence that you're still living in that old life to blame the law. Don't be the kind of person who believes that when God sets forth a standard, it's to punish us. But in reality, when we see what we have in Christ, we'll understand that the law in the bringing of light is a beautiful thing. It constantly points out our need and shows us again and again, presses us to Jesus so that we can have his righteousness and not our own. You see, it's possible. What if you were allowed to continuing to continue on thinking that you were okay? What a travesty it would be to live through life thinking that Jesus could be sidelined because you didn't really need him as much as maybe some of those other scoundrels needed him. But it's the light of the law that shows you once and for all that you're not going to make it. That you blundered your queen. That you had 17 inaccuracies. That really you're not as good as you thought you were. And so Paul says the Christian, the person who has been made new in relationship to these things, understands that it's the law that is good. It is sin inside of you taking this opportunity through the law that begins to produce all kinds of death. So, the law is a light. And sin, because it hates the light, begins to take this opportunity when it shows things like covenants and commandments to begin to produce death in us. So finally, he says in verse 11, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, it deceives me, and through this commandment, it kills me. See, it's not the law that's the problem, but law is used as a lethal weapon to pummel us to death. Last Thanksgiving, I wanted to introduce the kids to Old school board games. I don't know if you knew this. Board games are also cooler than they used to be. And nowadays, the kids that, the games that I played when I was a kid, they're not good enough for board game people. I don't know if you knew this. It's one of the first things you'll know about board game people now. If you run into a board game person, just ask them if they like to play Monopoly or any game you loved as a kid. And you'll see how quickly they say, like, <laughs> oh, you mean like old Ameritrash games? <laughs> Like, that, there's that kind of thing. I'm just warning you ahead of time, it's out there. And some of these games are just not good enough for our kids anymore, but last Thanksgiving I thought, you know what, I'm going to introduce our kids to Clue. Just a good old-fashioned wholesome murder game from my childhood The kids need to learn. So we played Clue. And I thought about how funny it is, some of the weapons, some of the lethal weapons in that game. And one of them, I think, is a candlestick, still. And I'm reading through Romans chapter 7 and I think to myself, I think that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying the law is like the candlestick, designed for light, it's beautiful, it's good, it has a purpose. It's just that somewhere here in the world, someone took an opportunity with that candlestick and they beat somebody to death. 
They just smacked them straight over the head. And you could make the mistake to say, you know what the problem here is candlesticks. Candlesticks, they're heavy, they're weighted, they got some little sharp part on the end of it. Sometimes they're wielding fire. It's those candlesticks that's the problem. And what Paul wants to say is, no, I don't think you understand. It is sin which wields this as a, as a lethal weapon. The law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it sets forth light for us. It has a good purpose in the world. But our sin, if left unchecked, takes an opportunity to deceive, to grab this law and to beat us over the head with it. And he wants to show us that this law that is good on its face, this law that is designed to give light, this law that will in fact pummel us to death if used by sin, no longer needs to bind us the way that it did before. We need not fear the law, but embrace the goodness of God revealed in Scripture and in His statutes and in His ways. Because in Christ we have been given a new master, a new lover. Light is something that we embrace now because the light of the world has come. And sin that has been made so evident in us no longer has rule and reign in our lives. What can sin do in an attempt to kill me? I've already died in Christ. I thought it was so funny when I was a little kid. I don't even remember if it was a movie or a book I read or something. One of the villains in it said, I'm going to kill you till you die from it. And I heard just thinking, what a funny turn of phrase. The point is this. Sin, over and over, will attempt to, even for those who are in Christ, try to kill you till you die from it. And what Paul's trying to have you see is, if you're already dead in Christ, if you've already been bound up in Him, if He already absorbed the wrath of God due for sin in you, then you don't need to die again and again and again. Run to Christ and be free from sin. Now these illustrations, these understandings are going to be vital. They may not be the actual part and parcel. I'd say that the the crux of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is the grace of God given to us in an unmerited way in Christ. But there is a reason, a good reason, that we are not instantly shuttled off to heaven the moment we confess Jesus. While we live here and now, those of us who are in Christ desire to honor him, We try to figure out, well, what do I do with this pattern of sin still in my life? Why do I still feel like this? Why am I still bound in some ways to this law? Why do I feel so much guilt and so much shame? Or, why do I feel so much guilt and so much shame that I don't feel more guilt and more shame? You ever had to confess a sin like that? Well, God, uh, here's my my confession of sin. I, I, I don't care about my sin, and I never confess it. Well, that's a, that's a great way to start confessing sin. And Paul is desperate that we do not name the name of Jesus, but then neglect all that we have in him. So, if you're in Christ, present yourself to him, give yourself to him, as though you have from the heart been given a new affection, a new spouse. And see in Jesus, 
as the one who has come into the world to, to show light, to show that he has perfectly upheld the law, that we can revel in and we can run to light, not have to shrink from it. And then ultimately, don't fear what sin can do through the commandment, but realize that if you are in Christ, you have died to this sin. And the commandment that God has given is good and can shape you. That you can say, God, please show me again and again and again and put to death this sin. Instead, give me righteous, holy goodness according to your design. This is what it's going to mean to walk with Jesus throughout life. Now, there's going to be more in Romans 7, and he's going to be very honest about the way that he struggles with sin, and I can't wait to get there, but we've got to stop and pray for now.